You're listening to the Finishing Strong Podcast, a lifestyle podcast for men who want to thrive in the third quarter season of their life, but need a sustainable plan. I'm your host, Steve Poniotu, and my life has been dramatically changed and influenced by some of the most knowledgeable and thoughtful people in their respective fields. I want to share these ideas and people with you, and perhaps they can do the same for you. Growing old doesn't have to suck. Join me as I'm finishing strong. Everybody, thank you for coming on and listening. Um, Today I have a special guest. He is uh, Mr. Greg Kokel. He is the founder and president of Stand to Reason. Greg started out thinking he was too smart to become a Christian and ended up giving his life for the defense of the Christian faith. A central theme of Greg's speaking and writing is that Christianity, if properly understood and properly communicated, makes the most sense of the world as we find it. And Greg happens to be a hero of mine. I've known Greg for about 30 years now. Uh, When I came to Christ, he was an associate pastor at a, a church in South Bay in Southern California, and I have followed him since then, been a big supporter of his ministry, Stand to Reason, and it's str.org, and uh, he has, he definitely has a special place in my heart because as you uh, grow in your Christian faith, there's people that have influenced you and, and nurtured you, and, 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 and Greg is one of those people that has done it not only in with facts but feelings and in and intellect that uh that is really captivating and more than that is really gracious and he always talks in a way that that uh, doesn't put people on the defensive or I, I, and this is my, these are my words. He would probably say, no, he riles up a lot of people, but he does it in a gracious way. And I really appreciate that. And, and it's a great model for me and Christians out there. But welcome, Greg. I look forward to talking to you and hearing what you have to say about the Christian worldview today. Well, Steve, what a treat it is for me to be on the show with you. And you know, I remember back, you know, I think it's about 20. Uh, 20, 20 some years ago when I came to Portland when you were living there and I we survived that big snowstorm there which was big to, by Portland standards one inch but it's it stopped the whole city you know <laughs> I remember that clearly in fact just yesterday I was talking about it with my wife because we had some sl- some uh, hail here in Southern California and it reminded me a little bit of that snowstorm so anyway it's great to be chatting with you and and I'm looking forward to our, our talk as well Steve great so um the premise of this show is um, really why do f- men in their fifties, or what I call the third quarter season of their life, mm-hmm. why do they need to think through a worldview, and 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 why does it matter? Well, it, and there's a lot of ways to respond to that, Steve. It's a really important question for people in, I'm just going to broadly say our stage of life. I'm a little bit past that period right now. Uh, people in their 50s were kids in the 60s, <laughs> but I was a kid in the 50s, so now I'm in my 60s, you know. 
but uh, but I can relate, um, obviously, to this period of time. And in one sense, it doesn't matter what age you are, um, it's important that you figure out what the world is really like, because there are um, weighty matters riding on getting it right, okay? But when you're in your 50s and in 60s, there's a it's a different period of life for most men. Um, I actually have two kids. One is 14 and one is 11. So this is atypical for me to be in my late 60s and have youngsters. For most people in their 50s, they are long past that phase. They're somewhat empty nesters or very close to it. The things that have uh, occupied their thinking uh, and consumed their life really for the last three decades, their their family, raising their kids and their job, that's all changed characteristically. They're still committed to their work, but a lot of times they've moved on professionally. They're maybe well-established in their enterprise, and the challenges are different financially, socially, in the family environment. And what this results in is it it gives um, a person in that stage of their life more time to think about what his life is really about. Okay? That could be good, could be bad, because the thinking might drive them to say, in one sense, man, I'm losing hold of my youth. I haven't accomplished much because maybe the, the pursuits have been shallow pursuits in their life. Uh, I want a fresh start. And so they start over with a new woman. <laughs> uh, yeah. In other words, that they they abandon um, what the the family that they've grown up with because they think that their satisfaction of the need that they're feeling is going to come by starting that cycle over again somewhat with a new person. It's kind of a mid 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 uh, midlife crisis kind of thing, and then you, know, you get the fancy automobile that you wish you had when you were 17 and all these other things. And I'm not putting that part down. I'm just saying that what I am concerned about shifting gears to a new family. I mean, a lot of times that's very ill-conceived, but the point I'm making is there's something underneath that's driving it. And I think these are the wrong ways to answer the questions that are being asked quietly in the heart, sometimes not so quietly. And that is what is important in life. What gives life meaning? What is my life all about? Uh, here are you know you're moving towards the twilight a little bit, and that gets a little frightening if we don't know where we're going. And so it might be a good time to try to figure out what it's all about. And so this is why this period of time it can be really dangerous because of that that thing happening inside, or it could be good. If it try if it if it pushes a person not to foolish ways of satisfying these hungers that are surfacing now in these questions, but pushes them to actually really be careful and think about the the deep issues of life, things that maybe they have not thought about uh, very much for all this time. And by the way, that's my comment. Just then would be more general to the population. But even for people who would consider themselves Christians, many have not, and I don't say this disparagingly, but just reflectively, many have not taken their Christian 
I, I, I'm pausing even now because I want to say understanding of the world because it, I, I don't even know that they really have these that I'm talking about have a very deep under understanding of the world in a Christian way. But in any event, they've had Christianity in their lives. They've had spiritual activity that might have been satisfying in some level to them and maybe Bible and teaching and preaching, but they have no deep sense of how it all fits together. And this may be a time of their life, too, where they're starting to hit some skids, uh, maybe with their health, maybe with relationships, maybe with disaffected children who are now going their own way and don't remember where they came from, and that's painful. And 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 there's no no real resource to turn to because there's not much of a foundation that they built over the last few years, even if they're Christians. That's interesting, Greg. You know what I thought of then was too when you when you mentioned that they send their kids off to college and their college their kids come back from college with these interesting uh, worldview or or challenges to their faith, mm-hmm. and now the dad and mom have to try and address those those challenges yeah. that uh, these professors have put in their mind. So it's a time when they could be getting challenged from 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 their kids and it's causing that kind of you know hey i can't answer these you know what does that mean for my faith right well you know what i have a 14 year old she's still four years or more from heading off to college i'm already facing that in spades with her so this the nature of the culture right now is that the culture outside uh, the 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 general culture is is getting more increasingly anti-christian and increasingly corrosive to good values and um and sensible ways of living sound ways of living and increasingly aggressive punishing dissent which means everything is harder than it used to be as we engage in the culture and with our kids going off that aggravates that circumstance as we're in a job situation that's impacted as well as we try to converse with others about our own convictions or we try to find those answers that we were just talking about we are going to get very aggressive opinions about uh, what the world is like from a, a wide variety of sources and the nature of the conversation now steve is and you know this that if you don't give the right answers to those people, they're going to punish you for it. That changes the game considerably. Interesting. That's of course you know I'm talking about political correctness here, broadly construed. Yes, absolutely. So it is important to have to have a well thought out worldview. I mean, it, it's absolutely important, and and that's why you're with me today, Greg. <laughs> you're my hired hit man because. <laughs> I, I tell you what, um, well, I, before I just, you know, gush all over you some more, uh, you're, you're, you're a, one of the smartest pr- people that, that I've known that can address it, not just in, in, in facts, but uh, with um, tactics and with graciousness. So let's, let's yeah. dive into that. What is it? Okay. What, what constitutes a worldview? Well, a worldview, in one sense, seems a bit self-explanatory. It's a way 
a person views the world. But in this particular case, we're talking about the understanding of that a person have has about the what the world is actually like. What is it um, in a certain sense made of? What is and I don't want to sound all highfalutin here because, but I'm just going to use the broader sense existence. What is existence kind of made? What is, what's out there? And what, what is it? What is, is there a God? Um, is there anything other than the molecules clashing in the universe? Um, is there a, is anything after death? Um, is there ultimate meaning in life or is meaning simply the meaning that we have to get, have uh, that we give it? at any given time, uh, what's right, what's wrong, uh, you know, morality, that kind of thing. Uh, There's a whole host of different things that are related to this question. Okay. With me so far. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, when we're younger, it doesn't seem to matter much. Uh, I mean, cause we're distracted by all kinds of different things. Right. We're distracted by what we're learning. We're t- a new world that's unfolding for us as we're teenagers. Um, a lot of new interests and a lot of freedoms, uh, a new job, love interests. Then we have children and we're building a family and all of those things um, consume our attention. And if we are financially more better off, we've got toys that can distract us from these interests these concerns but when we get to this age that we're talking about midlife a little later then those things have lost their 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 glow the glitter a bit and so then we start thinking more and so then we start asking ourselves okay what is the world really like what's going on i remember this um there's a song in the 60s so our our people might remember this our target here (laughs) What's it all about, Alfie? Right. What's it all about, Alfie? You know, and uh, there was a movie that was made about that where that film used that song. But I think this is it. What, what's it all about? Alfie was one of the characters. So what? What's it all about? If anything, now if it's not about anything, well, that's it too. Then we just say there's no answers to the big questions uh, because there's nothing there. It's just molecules clashing in the universe. And that turns out to be the worldview many people have. However, I think we know better because there are clues that are all around us as to what the world is actually like. And so I think that when one begins to ask these questions, we have to start in a certain sense in the broad, with the broad issues, the broad base, the broad, and then kind of begin to narrow them down. In other words, find the, um, it's, it's, it's kind of like if you were going on a, you were going to go on a vacation and you say, we want to go, our family's going on a vacation. Okay. Where are we going to go? What region or what state are we going to go to? Oh, we're going to go to Wisconsin for vacation. Okay. Now, now you've got a, you've got a big thing there. It's like, where in Wisconsin? Now you narrow it down a little bit. What are we going to do when we get to that spot? Now you're narrowing it down a little bit more. So there's a sense in which when we're dealing with worldviews, let's start with the bigger things and then narrow it down a little bit. And I think that the biggest question anybody asks ever about the nature of the world is this question, is there a God? And I think the reason they ask this question is because the answer to that question 
changes <laughs> everything that follows. I mean, think about it. If there is no God, there is no higher authority, there is no one to whom I am responsible, there is no one to whom I answer in an ultimate sense, um, and there is no ultimate purpose and meaning to life. We're just here. We make a, There is no God. We're just here. We make our own rules. We make our own meaning. And by the way, that's the way a lot of people actually think. Existentialists believe that. Philosophical tradition that a lot of people have kind of absorbed. But uh, there is no ultimate meaning. And the only meaning we actually have is the meaning we give for ourselves. And for a lot of people, that's enough until they realize, well, that means anybody's meaning is just as good as anybody else's meaning. So Mother Teresa had her meaning and, you know, ISIS has their meaning and Hitler had his meaning and Pol Pot had his meaning. And yeah, everybody's got their own little projects. And that's all you can say. You can't say that Mother Teresa had better meaning than ISIS because there is no better. Now, that doesn't seem right, does it? That seems like, wow, that I think to most people, frankly, Steve, when they think about something like that, they think, no, I don't. I think that's that doesn't seem right. Um, and this is where where I, I mentioned before, I think there's some clues I think, for example, I asked people, would you ever try to talk somebody out of a suicide? I said, well, yes, they would, they, they say. And I said, well, why, why would you? They say, well, I, I, I wouldn't want that person to waste his life like that. Well, wait a minute, what do you mean waste? You can't waste something that has no purpose. You can only waste something that has a purpose that's not being fulfilled. So if we have a sense that people killing themselves are wasting their life, doesn't that imply that we have a deep sense that life has purpose beyond our own desires? Because keep in mind that person's desire in that moment is to kill himself. And if that's all there is, we say, hey, more power to you. Right. Party hardy, you know, go drug yourself out and that's it. I mean, if that's all there is. And incidentally, it's not surprising that people who are Ex famous existential types did that very thing. They killed themselves. Okay. Gee, that just doesn't ring true in our hearts. So there's a clue that there's something going on here. And the clue is life seems to have meaning beyond ourselves. Okay. But that requires some other things to be in place. We also think um, one of the biggest objections that we have about, say, God, people have raised objections. Let me put it. Let me just put it this way and ask you a question: What is the biggest, or maybe one of the biggest, long-term perennial challenges that people have raised to Christian theism or theism of any sort? God can't exist because. Finish the sentence. Problem of evil. Evil in the world. Evil in the world. Right. I think it's a fair. It's a fair concern. Yep. <laughs> but you know, one thing that has to be true in order to raise this objection is there actually has to be evil in the world. That means there has to be people doing things that are actually wrong and not just different from my preferences. Right. Well, I, I think there is evil in the world and I do think it's means that 
people are doing things that are actually wrong and not just different from my preferences. Well, that means there's got to be a, a, a kind of a standard out there, um, a set of laws that people are breaking that they shouldn't be breaking. And that's what we call evil. But then if there are laws, then I think it's fair to ask, well, where did those laws come from? If there are a transcendent sense of, set of laws that, I don't know, that seems to suggest there must be a transcendent law giver that makes sense of the laws that are broken when we complain about the problem of evil. Oh, so there's another clue here. First clue is that it does seem that life has purpose beyond ourselves. Secondly, it seems that there's a morality that's part of the world that we can't account for just based on our own individual preferences, which is called relativism, by the way. So, gee, what do we do with those clues? So about five years ago, my 14-year-old, no, it was probably about seven. She was about eight years old at the time. And she was baptized as a Christian when she was six. But now she's starting to ask questions about the intelligibility of Christianity. And so she asked me this question, Steve. She says, Papa, how do we know that God is true? That's the way she put it. How do we know that God is true? In other words, how do we know there's really a God? We believe in him. That's what we believe. We're Christians. How do we know that's the right belief? So I thought about it for a minute. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I'm supposed to answer <laughs> all the time. You know, I'm that's my job. But now I'm talking to my daughter who's eight, and I'm trying to think of how can I put it, and how can I throw this ball so she can catch it? And then something comes to my mind. It just formulates error. And I thought, oh, bingo, Here's here it is. And here's what I told her. I said, the reason that we believe God is true is because he's the best explanation for the way things are. The reason we believe that God is true is because he's the best explanation for the way things are. And when I said that, I realized that's the way I've been treating this whole project of making sense of Christian theism to the rest of the world pretty much my whole life. It's the best explanation for the way things are. And the way that ties in here now is notice we just talked about we do have an innate sense that life has meaning beyond just our own personal decisions. Uh, we do have this sense that there is evil in the world, which means people who do things that are actually bad, even if they think the things they're doing are good, which Hitler certainly thought eradicating the Jews was a good thing. Right. So, so gee, what, what makes sense of that? One thing that doesn't make sense of that is atheism. Makes no sense of that whatsoever. If atheism is true, we have to deny a very common sense notion that we all have that life has a meaning in itself. There's something beyond us. We have to we have to deny that there's anything like morality out there and a problem of evil because that out there morality is being violated. And we have to just say, well, morality is just my own personal preferences. You have your way, I have mine. Hitler did one thing, Mother Teresa did another. It's all just stuff in the end. It's just different stuff. Okay. So it seems to me that is that that's not the best answer. And this begins to point 
along with a whole other lines, uh, uh, quite a number of other lines of evidence, things that we can figure out by looking around, this seems to point to a different explanation, that there is someone out there, someone who has made us in such a way that we are moral creatures. There is a moral standard that he is responsible for, and there, there, there is a purpose beyond just our own individual preferences because he made it so. Now, we may not know what that morality is at this point in our thinking. We may not know what that purpose is at this point in our thinking, but we know it's out there. Now, this is just, we're just making baby steps here, but you can see even with the baby steps, we've covered some pretty significant ground. And just as an aside, the great uh, British um, thinker, writer, um, C.S. Lewis, who started out as an atheist, uh, was converted to Christianity in a sense precisely because of this reason I'm talking about right now. He thought about it long and hard, and he realizes there, realized there were longings and desires and understandings and insights in our own heart, in our own mind, in our own selves that had no adequate explanation in a world bereft of God. And so he began his journey toward God, famously becoming a Christian and a great defender of Christianity in the 20th century. So I think those are some of the reasons why, so a foundation, I I, I mean, I'm a Christian partly because I think the foundation is right. The foundation being God is the best explanation for a whole host of things that we know to be true about the world. And I just mentioned two of them, meaning purpose, and morality. I also think when you look around at the world, it's pretty obvious that things were designed. That is, they were made to accomplish certain ends. You know, I walked out in the front yard and and we have um, the spring in Southern California, they have, we have lupins, one of the first flowers that come up. And, uh, we have a bunch of volunteers in our front yard and every year they reseed. And so we got a gazillion of them now and the plants come up. But I know if you notice all of these plants, they have these open leaves like a clover type, five leaf clover type, big bunches of leaves. And they all point at the sun. And as the sun moves, they all move. Right. Now we can understand the, the, the mechanical, biological, biomechanical reasons that happens, but how did that get put in place? And this is just one quick thing from yesterday's, I observed it, but our, but, but our, our, our experience with the, with the natural realm, the living world is, is absolutely overwhelmingly thick with these kinds of things. They were made for certain ends. And this seems obvious. And I, for one, am, am not the least bit persuaded because I've looked at the evidence that any naturalistic process like Darwinian evolution is even marginally capable of accomplishing these incredibly complicated ends, uh, just like birds flying. Uh, flight, just flight by itself is incredibly complex. But you know, it occurred five times, independent of each other. Birds, mammals, 
fish, insects, and uh, let's see, I'm leaving one out. Reptiles. Wow. Yeah, five times. All by themselves. Wow, that's really? By chance? No, I don't think so. So now we see, in a certain sense, the fingerprints of God all over. Just like a crime scene. Just like a, you know, we, we see the fingerprints. We see the evidence of someone having been here, having done something that uh, shows a purpose. So um, that becomes, I think, the first piece of a worldview that makes sense of the world. Denying God at this point, I think, is not the odds-on favorite. And there's, like I said, there's a whole bunch more things, how the world came into existence. Big Bang needs a big banger. Okay, duh. Uh, that seems like a common sense notion. All of these big things begin to fit. And so when I build my own worldview on the existence of God, and here we're just talking about God in a very general sense. Now I'm building on a solid foundation. I think I'm building on something that's true, and it allows me to go from there to maybe add some more pieces that can help give me a more rich understanding of what this world is really like and how I fit into it. And that's what a worldview is. Interesting. It uh, It's funny. It takes me back to probably those days in the 90s when I had one of your tapes. It uh -huh. was entitled, Has God Spoken? And yeah. I probably listened to that a thousand times. And, <laughs> and it's just what you're talking about. If we do believe that there's a God out there, which indications to me and you think they are, has he spoken or hasn't he? And if right. he has, what did he say? Can you talk mm -hmm. about that? Yeah, let me let me add one more piece to the puzzle here okay. um, that comes just before that, because that is a really important question. I mean, if there is a God out there, and we see his fingerprints and his footprints all around. <clears throat> has he tried in any way to communicate with us about things about himself and about his mind that we couldn't know unless he told us? <clears throat> I think the answer to that is yes, but let's back up just one more, because there's another player in the puzzle been talking about building a worldview. Uh, there's another player in the drama, I should mm -hmm. say, another piece to the puzzle. And that is that we've been talking about a worldview with the foundation being God making things a certain way. Okay. Mm -hmm. And okay, that's good. But really this question is not so much about God. Our question is about ourselves. That is, I'm not saying that human beings are more important than God. I'm just saying that existentially, in other words, from the perspective of our own experience and our own condition, our own que questions, we, we are wondering, okay, where do we fit in? Who is man is another part of this question, or who or what is man? And here, when I say man, I mean human, humankind, men and women. What does it mean to be a human being? It's interesting, um, Steve, that so many of our cultural conversation right now revolves around that question. All of these sexual issues and same-sex marriage and uh, uh, gender dysphoria, um, all of that revolves around the question of what does it mean to be a human being? And more and more, the answer is it doesn't mean anything. What matters is what we decide ourselves we want to make ourselves to be so but that's just an aside i'm making the point though that these issues have gravity 
Um, one of the things that we notice about ourselves, and, and again, I'm in a self, I'm in a reflective mode. For your listeners, notice what I'm doing. I'm not looking at a book, a Bible. I'm not looking at a prophet. I'm not looking at a religious tradition. I'm not look, looking outside of myself in that way to some authority to explain things for me at this point. I'm simply looking at my world as a human being trying to make sense of my world. And the first conclusion I came to is there, well, the, the, a personal God is probably the best explanation for a bunch of things that we know about the world. Then I asked myself, what, what can I know about myself? Other human beings. Well, one thing we know about human beings is that there's something pretty cool about them. There's something that is, is transcendent. And I want to use a word here, transcendently wonderful. What I mean is that is, it's bigger than us. And, and, and this is why we have certain moral obligations to each other. This is why we gas termites, but not Jews. Uh, this is why we we don't treat each other like animals. You know, we tell our kids, why do we tell them that? Because we're we realize we're not just animals. We we have an animal animal nature in some ways, but we're not just that. There's more to us than that. There's something special about us. Okay, so we are beautiful and and and, and magnificent in some way. You watch movies that show how the how human beings um excel and overcome adversity and in the description it will always say a celebration of the human spirit right. you know yeah. you see that description well what is that all about that isn't molecules clashing in the universe that's about something else that's something wonderful about human beings that is unique it's not wonderful about anything else in the same way anything else in the in in the universe might be magnificent and beautiful and awesome and all that but is not wonderful in the way human beings are wonderful we know this we don't have to convince each other of that but how can that be that's one thing we know another thing we know is that even though human beings are beautiful they are really broken there's something terribly that has gone wrong terribly wrong something has gone wrong and the thing that has gone wrong with the world, the problem of evil, is tied to the thing that's gone wrong with us. <laughs> and we know that. We know that evil's not just out there. That human, our, our prints are on the smoking gun, so to speak. And so here's another clue. How do we make sense of what seems to be a truism? To deny it is silly. That human beings are special, ought to be treated special. That's the whole notion of human rights, by the way. Every single time somebody says, I got a right to this or that, they are acknowledging the specialness of human beings right. and that human beings are broken. They're bad in a word. And when they're bad, they're really bad. When they're beautiful, they are magnificently beautiful. And when they're bad, they're really bad. And sometimes the beautiful and the, the really beautiful and the, the really bad are in the same person. And sometimes that same person is us. Mm -hmm. That is, we know it. We do things that are really great, and then we really bad. This is why we feel guilty. Mm -hmm. Which which raises another point. Maybe we feel guilty because we are guilty. Huh? How about that? Oh well, now there's now we got another piece to the puzzle. So what is it that makes human beings? Why is it that human beings are special? 
and what makes sense of them being broken at the same time and broken in a way that makes them guilty? Well, this is a worldview question. Now, you have two choices. You can either try to deny all of those things. No, man's not guilty. Man's not special. Um, man's not broken. No, I can just, well, that's denying reality, it seems to me. But that's the way a lot of people go. Or you could say, what makes the best sense of that? Now, here's what one form of theism says, that there is a God, and he made human beings to be in friendship with him. So he made them the kind of creatures that were capable of being in friendship with him. That's why they're not like anything else. In fact, they're kind of like God. They have the mark of God indelibly printed on their souls. But something went wrong. It turns out the thing that went wrong is that instead of honoring the friendship, human beings rebelled against their friend and their sovereign, their father and their king. And this resulted in the breaking not only themselves, but the whole world got broken, which is why we have a problem of evil. And it also made them guilty before their sovereign. Now, this is a big problem. Okay. So now, now the theism, I think everybody knows that I'm talking about here is Christian theism. Why do I believe Christian theism? Well, so far, because it's the best explanation for the way things are. Here are two huge pieces of a worldview, the existence of God and the nature of man, and all the common sense things we can figure out just by observing our world, the clues we can pick up, point to the kinds of things that Christianity actually teaches are true about about, about God's world from a Christian perspective. Now, this is, Steve, you, already, you know this, but I'm just going to say this for your listeners. Um, when you have a claim that matches the way the world actually is, that is the clash, classical definition of truth. Right. So this is kind of a way of saying that Christianity is true in the deep sense. Not true for me, but really true. Keep in mind, if somebody says that it's true for me, but it's not actually true, then it's not true for them either. It's not their truth. It's their falsehood. <laughs> it's their misbelief. It's their error. It's their confusion. It's not any kind of truth at all. But in any event, um, and so and so, this is the second piece. So you have God as one piece, and then you have man as another piece. Now, um, of course, now we come to this point where has God spoken? And in that particular talk, um, I talk about whether or not the scripture, the Bible, is an example of God having spoken. And then I give a series of reasons why I think that the book demonstrates itself to have a supernatural author and not merely human authors, okay? I don't want to go through all of those pieces right now just because it's more complicated, but I, I, but I do want to make the general point about God speaking because uh, one of the, a, a good portion of that record that we find in this book that we call the Bible, I mean, it wasn't always a book. It was a bunch of books, and it wasn't until the third or fourth century they bound them all together into one volume mm -hmm. call that a codex 
uh, it was actually fourth century more, but in any event, but the, all of those individual documents were there. A big part of them are documents that describe the life of an individual who is popularly known as Jesus of Nazareth. Well, this Jesus of Nazareth, among other things, clearly, according to the record, claimed to be that God who made the world and now was visiting the world as a human being for a purpose. Part of that purpose, of course, was to tell us about himself. You know, tell us about God. What is God like? No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, this is uh, referring to Jesus there in the Gospel of John in the first chapter, he has revealed him. He is the light that's come into the world, okay, as John describes. And so part of the claim of Christian theism is that God has not just communicated, but he's visited the world. Why did he visit the world? Well, for one reason I just mentioned, so that he could tell us about himself more clearly, but to also do something else. Remember, God made man to be in friendship with him, and man got himself in a heap of trouble. So what God does is he initiates a rescue plan. And, you know, in, in, in Christianity, you have something absolutely unique. In every other religion, you have uh, some, some transcendent, a belief in something transcendent beyond ourselves, more or less, um, sometimes it's God, sometimes it's not. Lots of times there is a God-like fe- figure involved. But in every religion, the solution to the problem is us. We have to rescue ourselves. However, in the Christian view of reality, the Christian worldview, we cannot rescue ourselves. We are lost. And frankly, I think a lot of people know that. I agree. God has God has to rescue mm-hmm. us. God has to rescue us. And that's why he came to earth to initiate a rescue plan to do something while on this earth for the short time that he was here that uh that that would accomplish the possibility of rescue for us. And there were two things, and now this, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. So now we have three pieces to our puzzle here. God, man, beautiful and broken, Jesus. And and and, and then what what did Jesus who who was Jesus and what did he come come to do? Those are the most important things. And one we've already I've already referred to this. He's he's the God man. He, he's the God man. He's the he's fully divine. He's fully the God that created everything, but he also took on a human nature, a real human nature, to live among us. He was one of us in that regard. And what did he come to do? He came to rescue us. And how did he rescue us? And that's the the next piece of the puzzle. I I, I made um, a reference a few moments ago, Steve, to a to human. Um, human responsibility for the brokenness of the world. And uh, I talked about the guilt that's associated with that. We feel guilty because we are guilty. Mm -hmm. 
how do you resolve the guilt issue? How, how do we how do we fix this guilt problem? Well, generally, if we're guilty of a big crime, we got to pay for it. The problem is when you have a big crime against the God of the universe, yeah, um, that paying for that crime is going to take forever. And I, I'm not speaking hyperbolically here. I'm not exaggerating. That would take forever. We would be forever paying for our crime, separated from the God that made us to love him and be in friendship with him. So what God did is he became a man to do two things, to be the kind of human being that we were meant to be, but failed to be. Let me say it again. To be the kind of human being that we were all meant to be, but all have failed to be. And so is he guilty? No, no. Jesus? No, he's not guilty. He deserves no punishment. But because he is guiltless and needs no punishment, he can become a substitute for us and take the rap for our crimes against God. He can stand in on our behalf. Now, I, I know this is that sounds crazy to some people, you know, um, but but uh, but this is something that God made possible. And the way the, the story describes it is even while we were yet in rebellion against God, sinners against him, Christ died for us. What does this show? It shows his love. It shows his incredible love for us. Who would die for anybody? There's a question that one of the, the writers uh, asks. Who would die? Some people might die for a good person, but who would die for a bad person? Who would die for a person who's so bad he slaps you in the face every single time you turn around? Would you die for somebody who's your enemy, who's always slapping you in the face? That would be a challenge. But that's exactly, no, yes, that's a great, but that's exactly what God did through Jesus. He died for us. So this was the way of the rescue, this trade where Jesus took our place. He he took our place to be punished for us, but he also took our place in another way. He traded our guilt for his goodness. So he was willing to take our guilt on him before the Father and be punished for that guilt so that we could take on the goodness that he earned in his life onto us in a certain sense. doesn't mean we're not bad anymore, but it means that the Father now sees us like he sees Jesus. Can you uh, and, can you uh, briefly go through that illustration that you've used hundreds of times about the court scene? And um, uh, what was it? I believe it was your mom or a woman in in that illustration to illustrate what what Christ did for us by taking that punishment. Well, uh. I, there's a couple of illustrations that come to mind. Uh, let me there. There's let me use this one. Um, it, it doesn't involve my mom, but it it involves a mother in the illustration, and maybe that's what yeah, you're, you're sure remembering. Enough. Okay, yeah. so this is a this is a case where a king has a theft in the royal treasury, and the theft is discovered, and he decrees that when the criminal is found that they receive 20 lashes at the whipping post to pay for their crime. 
Well, when they find the criminal, it turns out that the thief is the king's own mother. So he passes judgment on her and orders her to be tied to the stake. And then he steps off the throne, removes his robe, removes his crown, sets aside his scepter, takes off his own shirt, wraps his mother's frail body with his own body, bears his back to the to the um, executioner, punisher, and then declares that the punishment should commence. And every blow that was meant for and deserved by the woman falls on the back of the king himself. And so the punishment is made, the debt is covered, but the king takes the punishment on himself to rescue his mother whom he loves. And this, I think, is such a magnificent picture of what God has done for us in Christ. He's made available forgiveness with Christ having taken the punishment for us. So that happened, of course, on a cross around 33 AD. We have God, we have man, we have Jesus. Now we have a cross. So now we are sketching out our worldview. And notice the first couple pieces of a worldview we made from observations about the way the world was. And then we asked ourselves the question, gee, do you think that God has done anything to reveal himself and to try to rescue us from our own plight? And the answer there is yes. And this brings us to our third point. Jesus came down as God to reveal himself and to take upon himself the punishment we deserve on the cross. So, so, so now we have four pieces of our worldview puzzle in place. Now there's only one piece left. And that piece answers the question in light of all that, in light of those realities that God exists, that he's holy, that he made us to be in friendship with him, that we rebel against him constantly that he made possible a rescue by making a trade himself for our crimes against him. And he offers forgiveness. Now there's one thing left. What will we do about that? What happens next? And there's two alternatives. I call this the final resurrection. That means at the end of time, when everything resolves itself, because time is moving in a direction and things will not always continue the way they are right now. <clears throat> at the end of time, one of two things will happen, either perfect justice or perfect mercy. Perfect justice is punishment for everything we have ever done wrong and God misses nothing. And that will not be a, a pretty picture. It will entail eternal a painful banishment from God's presence or perfect mercy, which is forgiveness for everything we've ever done wrong and God misses nothing. And that would mean then not by our merit, not by our goodness, not by anything we've done, but by God's rescue plan and his mercy 
through what Jesus has done, we will be admitted to his kingdom to be able to the kind to enjoy the kind of perfect life he he uh, he he purposed for us at the beginning and the kind of perfect life our hearts have always yearned for and we call the two options heaven and hell i should reverse the order because that's the order i gave them in hell <laughs> perfect justice or heaven perfect mercy wow that that is the beautiful story and you know it, it it you know and i really hope all of us consider that and 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 think through it and 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 we we started big and and wide with just observations and and then narrowed it down as we as we came to some of these conclusions about these observations uh-huh. And they just built on each other to, to, uh, to show us a story, and right. that's one of your best works, I think, is the story of why, of the reality, and yeah. and and a shorter story that you did that why God had to die, right? And I really enjoy those, and 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 you know, um, but it, it goes back to, so we're fifty year old in this in this season of life and we're right thinking about this i hope it it, it's something that we can consider to work through and and to to think about those things and work through those things Mm -hmm. and uh, i don't know what well when somebody when somebody says uh, you know what's it all about elfie this is what it's about this is the way the world actually is and you mentioned uh, you made reference to the story of reality. That's the title of a book that I wrote that captures all of these points and develops them much more thoroughly, obviously, than I did here. The subtitle is How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. And plus, there's a smaller section of that book that's uh, individually published called um, um, Why God Died, uh, the story of why God died and came to life again. And that focuses more specifically just on the Jesus question and the rescue plan. But I think you're, it's wise for you to bring it back here to where we started. So we're kind of bookending here on, on this uh, idea of being in our 50s and asking oh, you know, the questions about what life is all about. Where do we go from here? And the, the answer is that you begin to, you, if you want your life to have substance and meaning, if you want to... Uh, in a certain sense, leave behind a legacy. If you want your life to represent something that uh, matters in the long run, and when I mean in the long run here, I mean not our four score and 10, I mean in the really long run, like the eternal run, then this is the way you order your life. You order your life according to the truths that we just talked about, that we are not our own, that there is a God to whom we belong because he made us. There is a God who has a purpose for us, and he has revealed that purpose in uh, a communication that he's made, not only through the record of the light of the teachings of his son that are recorded in books that we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also through other people, ancient Hebrew prophets and others that Jesus himself trained to follow after him, they also recorded much of this to give us a more robust view of it. We start living 
in light of those things. And in so doing, we are we are building for an eternal um, purpose. The long it's we, we're looking the long way, so we're not looking just okay. I'm I'm in my fifties and probably in my eighties. I'm going to be I'm going to be hanging up my cleats, you know, and 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 moving on. I mean, beyond that, you're moving on to something that you have built for because there is something out there, and by putting your trust in God's rescuer, you'll experience His perfect mercy, and you keep going forward, onward and upward, as it were after you shuffle off this mortal coil, as Shakespeare put it in Hamlet. Um, and it's not just the sweet, the apple pie and the sweet by and by. It's what's going on now. Now you're sinking your roots deeper. You're, you're building relationships. You're accomplishing things that, um, you, that, that have true significance. And, and, and I think it, it begins to satisfy this, this pain that you feel, this emptiness that you feel in your life, that your life has not been worth much. You have not produced much. You haven't left much behind of significance or worth. Now, you can do that by living according to God's own purposes for your life. It helps answer that question you're asking, Steve. Absolutely. And the alternative is pretty bleak, really. Right. And, and and it's a choice and, and you made this a point earlier, but you've made it years ago too. It's it's what would you like? Would you like justice or would you like mercy? Mm-hmm. And um you know, personally, I think we all, you know, at, at some point when it's somebody else we want justice. And when it's <laughs> when it's when it's us, we want mercy. <laughs> We want ju- we want justice for yes. them, mercy for us. No, I agree, I agree. But uh, uh, justice is not going to be a pretty picture for any of us if that's what we choose. And sometimes our choice is not explicit but implicit. We just let it ride, go along, and and end up being held responsible for the lives that we've lived. And um, but this there's a p- price to this in a certain sense. So. We've talked before, obviously, and Christian people familiar with Christianity probably have heard of the free gift of grace, and that is true. What God has done for us is free, but the way it's the, the way it's appropriated is we bend our knee. Yes, we bend our knee and we beat our breast, and we say, "I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me," and that is something many people refuse to do no matter how much is at stake and here forever is at stake because there's a forever for everybody things don't just go black and gone when you die you will everybody lives forever that's a fact of reality jesus made this very clear everybody lives forever how you live where you live the circumstances of under what you live that's a different matter there's no sitting on the fence on this one Right. How do they learn more about this and what you've done? Tell tell them where to find you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Um, you mentioned earlier in the show that uh, Stand to Reason, the organization I work with and for, has a um, has a website. The acronym for Stand to Reason is S T R. 
And so our website is str.org. Pretty straightforward. We have thousands of pages of information, uh, hundreds and hundreds of short videos that are instructive. My own, I have my own radio show. It's my 30th year. And, um, and so it also is offered as a podcast. And I, it's only th- total of all the things we do that I do is about three hours a week, which uh, is just one LA commute, as you know, right. Steve. So uh, it's not burdensome is the point. And this is one way people can listen in on conversations like we're having right now. I take live calls, interact with people who agree, disagree, whatever. I give them a piece of my mind and I want them to give me a piece of theirs because I believe that Christianity is worth thinking about. Uh, we also have some uh, free training material that you can receive monthly and sign up for at str.org. But uh, we have apps on our phone that you can download that make it real easy to access our material or have quick studies on different topics, including this one, the story of reality. There's quick analysis, quicker analysis than what, what we've done here. Uh, <clears throat> so all of those things are available to folks if they want to uh, to go to str.org or they can go to iTunes and uh, download, subscribe, to our podcast that doesn't uh, just look for standard reason, doesn't cost anything. We make it all available to everybody, but I think those are, and then the book, the story of reality or this, the smaller book, the story of how God died and came to life again. And uh, these are, and plus I have some other works too, that people might be interested in, but those are the ones that pertain most directly to this is- issue. We're talking about laying the foundations of a worldview. Well, thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure and it's been really a dream of mine to have you on the show and and have you as a friend and a colleague and the the resources that you've provided me in my 30 years of being a Christian as well as you know all of humanity and we just thank you for your your efforts and and what you've contributed to a community a smaller community and the community at large thank you so much Greg well, you're really welcome, Steve. I had a pleasure. It's been a pleasure just chatting with you, and and um, I look forward to seeing you again one of these one of these years when our paths cross. Thank you, sir. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Finishing Strong podcast. If you've been impacted by what you've heard on this episode, like, comment, and subscribe, and tell a friend. Follow our guests. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Growing old doesn't have to suck. Join me as I'm finishing strong.